do that. Maybe that'll be better. For the first time in my life, I think I have written a two-part message. And I don't think you want to be here till two this afternoon. So as the Lord leads, we'll split this thing in half. Let's take your Bibles this morning. Let's go to Luke chapter one. Luke chapter one. And we're going to divert from the family at a series I was doing with it being Christmas month and everything. And I'm going to talk about Jesus Christ for a little while. Someone uh, was talking about preaching and the comment he made was, well, you can't fail when you have good material. And Jesus is the best thing to preach on. He's the best person to talk about. So in Luke chapter 1, let's all stand respect to the reading of the Word of God. In Luke chapter 1, and we'll begin in verse 26. The Bible says, And in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail, thou that art highly favored, the Lord is with thee, blessed art thou among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great, shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Then said Mary unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. And behold, thy cousin Elizabeth, she hath also conceived a son in her old age, and this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren. For with God, nothing shall be impossible. And Mary said, Behold, the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. And the angel departed from her. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we thank you that, Lord, you allowed your Son, Jesus Christ, to come to this earth to be born of a virgin. And Lord, that 33 and a half years later, he would shed his blood on the cross of Calvary for the likes of us. Lord, to redeem us, to forgive us. Lord, to give us a home in heaven for eternity. That by accepting him as our Savior and asking his forgiveness for our sin, that Lord, we be made a child of God. The Father, today, I pray, Lord, that you'd bless the preaching of your word. I pray, God, that, Lord, if there be one here who doesn't know Jesus Christ, that, Lord, by the time the last amen is said and we go home, that, Lord, they would know Christ in a very personal way. Father, I pray for those today who need to grow closer to you. I pray, God, that, Lord, what's said today would encourage them, would lift them up, bring them closer uh, to their Savior, Christ. And, Father, I pray, Lord, that you would strengthen us as a church. 
Lord, build us, help us to grow, help us to do what is right in your sight for your honor and for your glory. Lord, we can never say that we love you enough. We can never say that we worship you enough, never say that we praise you enough. But Father, today, allow us to worship you and to praise you and to thank you for the marvelous things that you've done for us. And Father, we ask all these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. In a few days, we will celebrate the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And I know that it may not have happened on December 25th. I've heard all the arguments and I've seen all the calendars and done all that stuff. It's not the point of it being December 25th. It's the point of us using this day to worship our Savior Jesus Christ in this way. He is God. He is Christ. He's our Savior. The Son of God. The Savior of the world. The Messiah. The Chosen One. The King. But in order for us to believe these things about Christ, we must accept His deity. In order for us to believe, in order for us to know that Jesus is the King, the Messiah, the Chosen One, the Son of God, we must know, we must accept His deity, that He is King, that He is Lord, that He is God. But there's so many today that look at Jesus Christ and they'll say, well, he's just another figurehead of another religion. But he's not. He's God. He's not a figurehead of another religion. He's the Messiah of the nation of Israel. He's not another figurehead of another religion. He's my Savior. He's my Lord. And He's my God. He is not just the figurehead of another religion, for He will be the one who comes to take His children home. This is who Christ is to me. But we must accept His deity in order to know that He is Christ. I have looked at several aspects of His deity. This morning I want to share a few of those with you. The first thing we see to prove His deity is that it is defined in predictions found in the Word of God or prophecies about Him in the Word of God. We see, number one, in Isaiah 7.14, the Bible says, Therefore the Lord Himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call His name Emmanuel. We see this fulfilled in the book of Luke in what we just read that the angel Gabriel came and told Mary that she would be the chosen one, that she was highly favored of God among women, that she would be the one to bring forth the Son of God. There are those today who would say that Mary takes a special place 
in Christianity today. But my friend, she was simply a handmaid of the Lord. She was the one that God chose. She was the one that God selected. She was the one that God placed His hand upon to bring forth Jesus Christ into this world. She was a virgin, just as the book of Isaiah says. And it's not that uh, some people will say she was a perpetual virgin, but she wasn't because later on in Matthew 13, we see the names of Jesus' half-brothers on this earth. Not too long ago, someone told me that she was a temple virgin. And that because of that, that's why God selected her. But the problem of it is to be a temple virgin, she had to be a perpetual virgin. From the day of her birth to the day of her death. But from Scripture, we know that that is not the case. You see, she was the one who God chose. I can't explain how it happened. I don't understand how God was able through the Holy Ghost of God to overshadow this young lady and for her to be found with child. But God in His infinite wisdom chose this direction to bring forth His Son, Jesus Christ. Preacher, do you believe that really happened? I really believe it happened. You say, why? Because I'm placing my faith in the Word of God. And through my life and through the years of ministry that I've spent, I've come to find that the Bible's true. You can't deny it. You can't change it. You can't correct it. That Bible is infallible. It's inerrant. It not only contains the Word of God, but it is the Word of God. And we must place our faith in something that we accept is true, that we know is infallible, that we know is inerrant, that we know is the Word of God. And we must accept beyond question what we find within that book. Ladies and gentlemen, I present to you today that the prophet Isaiah said that a virgin would bring forth a child and would call his name Emmanuel, and we see it fulfilled in the book of Luke this morning. We see it fulfilled in each and every one of our lives when we accept Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior, that a virgin conceived and brought forth a son. This is what I believe as part of proving his deity. Not only that, we know that the virgin birth had to happen because of the political realm that Christ found himself in. We know that Jesus Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And we know that he has the right to the scepter of the throne of David. But as we study through the Old Testament and we look at the, the kingly lineage of the Old Testament, we find a gentleman by the name of Kaniah, who was also known as Jehoiachin and also known as Jehoiakim. And we find there in the Old Testament a, a uh, curse brought against him where the Bible says to consider this man childless, that he was not to bring forth any more children, and therefore the kingly line of the throne of David stopped. But in order for the throne of David to continue on, it had to be through a virgin birth. It had to be through the one and only God Almighty. We see the lineage the history. We see the lineage of Jesus Christ in the book of Matthew. We see the lineage of Jesus Christ in the book of Luke. One is of Joseph. One is of Mary. I thank God for Joseph. Could you imagine how hard it had to be for him to take on this young lady 
who now all of a sudden was with child. Can you imagine how hard it had to be for him to believe the story that she told him? Can you imagine that discussion? Joseph, we need to talk. <laughs> but you know, it took an angel coming to him to convince him. You see, let me say this. These are two people we see that walk by faith. You want an example of walking by faith? You look at Mary and you look at Joseph. The virgin birth is an absolute fact. You say, how else do you know that? Matthew gives us an eyewitness account of the life of Jesus Christ. Mark gives us an eyewitness account of the life of Jesus Christ. Luke gives us an eyewitness account of the life of Jesus Christ. And the Bible says in the mouth of what? Two or three witnesses, let every word be established. And through Matthew, Mark, and Luke, three witnesses, we establish that the virgin birth is absolutely true. But not only do we see it in the virgin birth, We see it in about where he was born. Micah 5.2 says, But thou, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. Micah foretold, that Christ would be born in Bethlehem. We know this is true because when Herod wanted to find out where Christ was, if you remember when the wise men came to him and said, where is he that is born king of the Jews? He went to the chief priests and to the scribes and said, where is he at? And they came back and they quoted to him, guess what? Matthew, I'm sorry, Micah chapter 5, that he would be born in Bethlehem. So see, it's not only confirmed through Scripture, but it's confirmed through the chief priests and the scribes of the time that Christ would be born in Bethlehem. Then again, we see another uh, part, another prophecy concerning Christ in the Old Testament in Psalms chapter 100, verse 1. It says, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. We know that this will happen in the millennium when Christ is the king of the millennium on this earth during the thousand year reign of Jesus Christ. Now, with all of that being said, I want, to, I want to read to you uh, something that I found, an article that was put together by a college, a secular college, on the mathematical probability of Christ fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies. Of all these prophecies coming true in one man's life. 
The science of probability attempts to determine the chance that a given event will occur. A professor at Westmont College has calculated the probability of one man fulfilling the major prophecies made concerning the Messiah. The estimates were worked out by 12 different classes, representing some 600 university students. The students carefully weighed all the factors, discussed each prophecy at length, and examined the various circumstances which might indicate that men had conspired together to fulfill a particular prophecy. They made their estimates conservative enough so that there was finally unanimous agreement even among the most skeptical students. However, the professor that took their estimates and made them even more conservative. He also encouraged other skeptics or scientists to make their own estimates to see if his conclusions were more than fair. Finally, he submitted his figures for review to a committee of the American Scientific Affiliation. Upon examination, they verified that his calculations were dependable and accurate in regard to the scientific material presented. For example, concerning Micah 5.2, where it states that Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, the professor and his students determined the average population of Bethlehem from the time of Micah to the present, that then they divided it by the average population of the earth during the same time period. They concluded that the chance of one man being born in Bethlehem was 1 in 300,000. After examining only eight different prophecies, they conservatively estimated that the chance of one man fulfilling all eight of the, I'm sorry, all eight prophecies was one in ten to the seventeenth power. So that'd be ten with seventeen zeros after it. One in ten to the seventeenth power. And the professor gave this illustration. If you mark one of 10 tickets and place all the tickets in a hat and thoroughly stir them, and then asked a blindfolded man to draw one, his chance of getting the right ticket is one in 10. Suppose that we take one, to, one times 10 to the 17th in silver dollars and lay them on the face of Texas. They'll cover all the state two feet deep. Now mark one of these silver dollars and stir the whole mass thoroughly all over the state. Blindfold a man and tell him that he can travel as far as he wishes, but he must pick up the one silver dollar that has the Pacific mark on it. What chance would he have of getting the right one? Just the same chance that the prophets would have had of writing these eight prophecies and having them all come true in any one man from their day to present time. In financial terms, is there anyone who would not invest in a financial venture if the chance of failure were only 1 in 10 to the 17th power? No. This is the kind of sure investment we're offered by God for faith in his Messiah. From these figures, the professor concludes the fulfillment of these eight prophecies along, alone proves that God inspired the writing of these prophecies. The likelihood of mere chance is only 1 times 10 to the 17th power. Another way of saying this is that any person who minimizes or ignores the significance of, biblical, of the biblical identifying signs concerning the Messiah would be foolish. But of course, there are many more than eight prophecies. 
In another calculation, the professor used 48 prophecies, even though he could have used Edserman's 456 prophecies and arrived at the extremely conservative estimate that the probability of 48 prophecies being fulfilled in one person is the incredible number of 1 in 10 to the 157th power. The professor gives an illustration using the number of electrons. Electrons are very small objects. They're smaller than atoms, and it would take two and a half times 10 to the 15th power of them laid side by side to make one inch. Even if we counted 250 of these electrons each minute and counted day and night, it would still take 19 million years just to count a line of electrons one inch long. With this introduction, let's go back to our chance of 1 in 10 to the 157th power. Let's suppose that we're taking this number of electrons, marking one, and thoroughly stirring it into the whole mass. Then blindfolding a man and letting him try to find the right one. What chance he is finding the right one? What kind of pile will this number of electrons make? They make an inconceivably large volume. This is the result from considering a mere 48 prophecies. Obviously, the probability that 456 prophecies would be fulfilled in one man by chance is vastly smaller. Once one goes past one chance in 10 to the 50th power, the probabilities are so small, it is impossible to think that they would even occur. As the professor concludes, any man who rejects Christ as a son of God is rejecting a fact proved perhaps more absolutely than any other fact in the world. We have no doubt, based on the prophecies of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament, that He is God. That He is Christ. There is no way we can deny it. There is no way we can walk away from it. There is no way we can ignore it. But yet people today would rather believe that sometime in how many million years past that a single cell life form decided to crawl out of a mud puddle and become a two-cell life form. And later to eventually evolve into mankind. I believe it takes more faith to believe that than it does to believe in my Savior, Jesus Christ. We see His deity not only in prophecy, but we see His deity in divine names. In divine names. He is called God. In John 20, 28 says this, And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. He is called the Son of God in Luke chapter 4, verse 41, which says, And devils also came out of many, crying out and saying, Thou art Christ, the Son of God. And he rebuking them, suffered them not to speak, for they knew that he was Christ. He is called Lord. Matthew 12, 8 says, For the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath day. And in Revelation 19, 16, And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings, and Lord of Lords. 
He is called other divine names. In Revelation 1.17, And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. We look at the names of Christ and we understand that by these names, we understand his deity. We understand who he is simply by who he was called. When God spoke to Abraham, And he told him, he said, who shall I say that sent me? And what did God say? Tell them that I am sent me. And then later on during the ministry of Jesus Christ, he said, before Abraham was, I am. We know that Christ is God. We know that He always has been. We know that He is now. And we know that He always will be. We know that He never had a beginning. And we know that He'll never have an end. We know, we know these things by the Word of God and by the faith that we place in the Word of God. More than that, we know these things by the fact that He saved us, that He gives us that peace, that He gives us that comfort that passes all understanding. We know from the Word of God that He saved us for all eternity and that He's given us a home in heaven on high. We know, we know when we bow the knee, ask Jesus Christ to forgive us of our sins and to come into our heart and life and to be our Lord and our Savior, that there was something that happened inside of us that no one can explain. There was a change. There was a creation. There was a new man made in an image and likeness of God. And folks, you cannot explain it. You can't write it down. You can't, you can't begin to comprehend what God has done for those who have asked Him to be their Lord and to be their Savior. That's my God and that's my Savior. And folks, that's what I'm banking on and I'll take it to the day I die that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, that He saved me, that He washed me in His blood and He gave me that home in heaven for all eternity. Let me say this. How can we deny it? Well, I'd never deny him. You do it every day. You don't pray when you should pray. You don't thank him when you should thank him. The old man comes out every once in a while. Am I right? And every time we sin, you know what we do? We deny him. I know that He's Christ by the prophecies that He fulfilled. I know that He's Christ by the names that He's given in the Word of God. The name Jesus, a translation of the, a transliteration of the name Joshua from the Old Testament, means He will save His people. I don't know about you, but when I hear when I hear someone have that name on this earth right now, it bugs me. I like to watch boxing on television, and there's always somebody from South America or Mexico, some boxer whose name's Jesus. And I don't know why, but that bugs me when I see a guy carrying that name. It really just bugs me. It bugs me to hear somebody take his name in vain. 
It hurts me. And it should hurt you. There's something about that name. You can't get past it. You can't get around it. You can't ignore it. There's something about the name of Jesus. There's power in that name. There's holiness in that name. There's righteousness in that name. And more than that, there's salvation in that name. We sit back and we think about who Jesus is. And as I said at, at Penny's funeral, I have not seen nor ear heard, neither hath entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love Him. You know, people have this comprehension of sitting on a cloud and playing a harp and having a set of wings and, you know, floating around. That's not heaven. Can I tell you what heaven is? Heaven is the throne of God. Heaven is the angels and the cherubim and the seraphim gathered around the throne of God. Heaven is the saints who have gone on gathered around the throne of God. Heaven is a place of worship, eternal and holy. We think about the name of Jesus. How can you get any better? My Jesus born of a virgin in Bethlehem, lived a perfect and sinless life, rejected, denied, brought before Pontius Pilate, scourged, stripped, the crown of thorns placed upon his head, as he carried the old rugged cross of Golgotha's mountain. How can we deny who he is? We sit back and we think about all the things that he did for us. How can you deny it? How can people deny, today deny Christ? But yet on December 25th, there'll be people all around the world, Christians and atheists, Muslims, Hinduists, and whatever group, other group you want to add in there, will get up and gather around and give gifts to each other and sing Christmas songs 
But folks, we must remember that he is the Christ. Years ago, I worked with a young man who was an atheist, and uh, we were talking about Christmas. And I asked him, I said, why do you celebrate Christmas? And he looked at me kind of funny. And he said, well, it's just a time for us and the kids. I said, but if you're truly an atheist and truly believe that God never existed, To be true to what you say that you are, you shouldn't take the Christmas bonus. You shouldn't take the day off. You shouldn't take the Christmas ham or whatever the company gives you. You shouldn't have a Christmas tree. You shouldn't go see the lights. You shouldn't buy gifts for your children. And no one, and you should not accept a gift from anybody else. If you truly believe what you say, you believe. Well, that's not funny. I looked him in the eye and I said this. I can celebrate Christmas and have a clear conscience because I know why. I said, you don't have a clue. You see, it's about Christ. Can I encourage you? Say Merry Christmas to somebody. Not Happy Holidays. Put a gospel track in your Christmas cards when you mail them out. You see, This holiday coming up isn't about us. It's about Him. And we must always remember that it's about Him. Can we stand for a moment? See, I told you I'd be good. I told you I'd split it into two parts. But folks, today, as we look at the holidays coming up, we must always remember it's about Christ. And maybe you're here today and you've never, ever bowed your head And ask Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sins. Come into your heart and be your Lord and Savior. There's never been a time in your life where you felt the true conviction of God, knowing that without Jesus Christ in your life, that hell was your home and that's your final destination. Knowing that the only way that you could pay for your eternal sin was with your eternal soul. An eternal debt takes an eternal payment. And the only thing you have to pay for your eternal debt is what? Your eternal soul.
But when Jesus Christ saved me, when He saved you, what He did was He took something that was eternal to Him. And that was His blood. And He paid for my sin debt, my eternal sin, with His eternal blood. Now today I want to make the same offer to you. Do you know Christ in a personal way? Has there been a time in your life where you've accepted Jesus Christ? Do you know for sure that heaven's your home, that you're saved, that you've been forgiven? Hey, something my wife and I have talked about the last few days, but she told me this. She said, with Penny's passing, she said it becomes so real that we're one moment, one day, one heartbeat, one second away from meeting God face to face. I mean, when she went to bed that night, no idea. And she woke up in the arms of her Savior, Jesus Christ. I told my wife, I said, you know, waking up in the morning is a blessing. What about you? Do you know Christ? Are you saved? That's why we're here. Christ wants to give you the greatest gift of all. And that's the gift of eternal life. The gift of salvation. So as Miss Patty begins to play, and heads are bowed and eyes are closed, but maybe you're here today and you need Christ. Would you come? Would you just come and take this pastor by the hand and say, Pastor, I, I'm not sure I'm saved. I'm not sure where I'd spend eternity. We'll have someone take a Bible and show you how you can know for sure that Jesus is your Savior and heaven's your home. Christian, maybe you're here today. And as I said, there's times in our life when we just flat deny. We don't mean to, but it happens. We may not be like Peter and deny him three times before the cock crows. Maybe we're still not living for him. We're still not doing right. We haven't shared our faith with someone that God's directed us to do. We haven't been faithful. You haven't been the husband you need to be. You haven't been the wife you need to be. Why don't you bring it to the altar today? Folks, the most precious real estate we have at Grace Missionary Baptist Church is this altar. This is where business is done with God. So if you need to do business with God today and God has spoken to your heart, would you come? Would you come right now? Would you come and pray? Come on.